lives. And at the beginning of this year, I mentioned that there were three particular themes that we were going to unpack over 2022. And we've done more than three themes over the course of the year. But the three I mentioned, we've done two of them. And we're about to start the third one today, which will run for the next four weeks. And the theme is this, compelled and compelling. And, and I just need to put a bit of a disclaimer in here. I don't have a lot of words to bring you today. I don't have an eloquent talk to give you that's going to tickle your mind and interest your intellect. In fact, what I feel I've got to bring today, unless it's anointed, unless it's got the unction of God on it, you leave and just think, ah, oh, that was an all right service. But if God moves through my life and into each of our hearts like I sense he wants to today, then I believe this could be a very precious day in your diary. I, this morning, got up early, sat in my study at home, and I just sat in the presence of God, and I just felt that my one prayer for today was that God would revive us, yes. revive our hearts. I couldn't pray for anything less than that today. I felt like God is at, mo- at work in the nations. Yes. He is doing things, these historic days that we're alive. There's a fear narrative everywhere. There's such fear around. There's such instability around. And we've been predicting for a while that that's where the nation is going as it shakes. But I want you to know, our confidence doesn't come from what's happening in Parliament. It doesn't, our confidence doesn't come from the decisions that the Bank of England make. Our confidence comes from knowing who we are in God. And church, take heart. Don't have fear. Know whose you are. And know that God is at work on the earth. And he's not just working out there. He's wanting to work in here. And I believe that he wants to revive our hearts. So as we begin this theme together, let's look at our key text, which is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. And it says these words. For Christ's love compels us. Say that with me. For Christ's love compels us. Come on, say it again. And this time, I want you to understand something of the word compel. Because on the image on the previous screen, you would have seen a chain. Now, why would we put an image of a chain relating to the gospel? Well, there's something about this word compel that is almost like us being attached in an unescapable way. That there's nothing we can do to sever it, to cut it off from our life. This is not an optional extra. This is something that demands something of us. So let's read that first few words again. For Christ's love compels us. We'll look at more around that word compel in a moment. But the writer goes on to say, because we are convinced that no one died, that what, sorry? (laughs) For we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live 
should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. For Christ's love compels us. Compel is having to do something. There's not a choice. I have to respond in a certain way because I'm compelled to do so. It's because it's necessary. Because of the argument, the persuasion, the circumstance, how could I come to any other conclusion? A mathematician might say, two plus two equals what? And you are compelled to say four, because you know that that's the persuasion. For I am compelled by God's love. The Greek word that the New Testament was written largely in the language of Greek. And it has this thought around this word compel. It paints an image of being crowded around. If you've been in a busy environment and there are crowds all moving in one direction and you're trying to go in the other direction, it doesn't happen easily. Because there's something persuasive about being surrounded and taken in the direction that they're going. There's something in this word that gives that impression. There's another thing that gives an impression of it being seized or gripped or grabbed. Or this is a bit of an unusual one, affected by an illness. Where you can't wake up one morning and say, I'm not going to be ill today. If there's an illness in your body and there's something that you're battling against, then that tends to dominate so much about our activities, our thoughts, so on. And there's something about this word compel that says this is not an optional piece of our life. This is absolutely convincing, persuasive, and pervasive. That we are completely impacted because of the compelling nature of God's love, we are so completely impacted that you cannot shake it off. For Christ's love compels us. Now, our discipleship journey of following in the footsteps of Jesus, you remember a previous theme, hear and obey, hear and obey. That's the footprints of a follower of Jesus. Those are the footsteps of discipleship that we take in following in the footsteps of our Lord. But our discipleship journey is to be utterly compelled by the overwhelming love of Jesus. That's the compulsion. It's not religion. It's not duty. It's not standing in some form of sacrifice, hoping that you can win the affections and the interest and the attention of God. It is utterly compelled by a love that has come in our direction and it results in us having no opportunity to do anything other than respond by being compelled by His love. His love, it doesn't say it influences us. Of course it influences us, but influence is a little bit sort of take it or leave it. If it was Christ's love influences us. There might be bits you can take from that section of his life, bits you can take from that section of his life and think, I'm going to adopt those in some way and I'm going to inculcate them into my activities. But it does not say, for Christ's love influences us. It doesn't say, for Christ's love inspires us. 
Now I'm inspired by the love of God. I'm inspired by the character of Jesus. I'm inspired by so much of everything I see around his life. But it doesn't say that Christ's love inspires us. It says it compels us. It does not say that Christ's love challenges us. Yes, it challenges us, but it demands so much more. It compels, it convinces. It means that there's everything in my life I need to give in response. Christ's love compels us. Now, Jesus is not after the metaphorical spare room in your life. He is not looking to lodge in your world. He's not looking to hang out in the spare spaces of your day. He is looking to have the rights to your home. He is looking to exchange contracts and to say, this now belongs to me. Why? Because Christ's love compels us. He's not looking to travel in your car on your journeys in life, to be that occasional advisor, to be the person that when you get lost, you pull over and say, hey, Jesus, in the back seat, I'm a bit lost, I'm a bit stuck, can you help? Now, we've all been in that place and he is so gracious, he's so kind, he's so loving, he's so compassionate with us. And how many times have you stopped and asked for his help and he's helped you? But he doesn't want to be in the back seat of our lives. He wants the steering wheel, he wants the keys, he wants the logbook, he wants to control the music, he wants to control everything that's in that car because he, his love compels us. This is not giving him a bit, a percentage. This is about giving him everything. He is looking for complete control. He's not looking for a tithe of your time or a tithe of your belongings. He's looking for everything. Some people say, how much should we give to the Lord? How much of my time? How much of my activities? How much of my finance? We give him everything. Why? Because his love compels us. But hang about. Doesn't this sound a little bit like the demands of a despotic, manipulative person? Well, let's think about some despotic leaders. How many despotic leaders in history have loved their people? How many of their actions have come from fear, not love? The manipulators I've seen in life, and I've met a few of them in my time, they're people that use and abuse the mechanisms of fear to control other people. There's a big difference between love and fear. And it's not Christ's fear that compels us, it's Christ's love that compels us. It's important for me to point out here that the Bible doesn't skirt away from the need for a fear in our life. Not the fear of, I'm scared of heights, or the fear of some other bad calamity happening, or the fear of a God who's going to hate us. That's not what the Scripture talks about. But it does say that if you want to be wise in life, that wisdom comes from the origins of fear. Fear in the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. What does that mean? 
Because we're talking about the love of God. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's respect. You heard a few people mention that one of the most impacting locations on our tour in Israel was Shiloh, this place where for over 300 years the tent of meeting, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant was. And as we stood in that spot where that was, we could look out and we could see areas around where the different tribes had camped. And right in the center was this tent of meeting, this place of presence. They knew that they needed to keep that in the center of their lives. And they, and they couldn't just do whatever they wanted there. In fact, there are some situations we read of in the scriptures where people tried to skirt around the requirements of the presence of God. There was an excitement about the return of the Ark of the Covenant back to the people of Israel. And David danced and celebrated and they put it on a cart this Ark of the Covenant, and the cart began to break and wobble, and the Ark began to fall, and somebody stretched out their hands to steady the cart, and they died. That's not because God is an unloving God. It's because He, as well as Abba, Father, He is the Lord of all, the universe, the, the power of powers. That There is no rival. There is no one greater. And we can't just slink into the presence of God and just do it blasé. There is, do we not realize how much this costs to be able to step into his presence? Do we not understand that the king of glory came to this earth to live a humble life, to give himself, so that we can say that it's Christ's love that compels us. We can see the evidence of his love. It's not a rumor. It's not a reputation. It's a reality. Jesus hung upon the cross because his love compelled him to come and to give his life for you and I. That even though we were enemies, Christ died for us. And he has restored us. But we don't just slink into his presence and say, oh, whatever. There is, if you want to be wise in your life, you've got to make sure the presence of God is in the center. If you want to be wise in your life, you've got to make sure that God is the center of your home, the center of your ambitions, the center of your desires. You know, and guys, not just everybody, but guys, men, we have to take a lead on some of this stuff. And I'm not being... I'm not sort of discounting by any means. Those who know me know that I'm not saying this because a woman can't take a lead as well. But guys, I've got to say that there are, throughout history, there have been some incredible sacrificial women that have made sure that the presence of God is central in the community of God's people. And the men have been skirting on the tails of what God's doing. And, and guys, men, Christ's love compels you. And you might say, well, you know, and, and, I, and I sort of get it. You know, I think there's a pressure upon us guys to be the providers, to be the people who have got it sorted, the people who can take responsibility and help make things happen. I get that. That's a powerful narrative. And 
Yet, Christ's love requires us to fall on our faces and to say, I surrender everything to you. And that's so counterintuitive for many, many guys. But men, we need to see the purposes of God released among men. When we were in Israel, we went to this special Jewish festival, Yom Kippur. And I was fascinated by thousands of Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall. And there were all ages there. Because the men, their primary, the primary teacher in the life of a child is not the rabbi, it's not the schools, it's the fathers. The fathers are the ones who are responsible to pass on to the next generation. And it was a fascinating experience because there were thousands of people, but there was no stage, there were no microphones. No one was giving direction to the thousands of people. No one was saying to the kids, hey, this is what you do, because they'd already done that. There was this sense of everybody had prepared one another to be in this festival, to know what was taking place, to know what was going on. Guys... I wasn't planning on saying this this morning, so excuse me going off script. But I feel saddened. I feel saddened that there is a sense of machoism where guys sing the football chants in stadiums and yet hold back their worship in church. And what does that teach our kids? What does it teach others around us? And in terms of fairness, women, don't you hold back saying you need other people to step forward. What is it that compels us? Is it our gender? Is it our race? Is it our culture? Or is it Christ's love? What is it? Because the decision that you make about what's compelling you in your life will be the narrative that you live your life according to. Too many people carrying too much baggage Too many cultural issues of this world. Too many things have derailed us, have stopped us. Too many things have got in the way of us laying our lives at the altar and saying, it's Christ's love that compels me. Nothing else. My dreams, my desires, my ambitions, my hopes, my career, it all is subject to the compelling nature of the love of Christ. Everything. And if there is a sense of moving the order of that around, I have to question, have you ever encountered the love of God? 
Because once you have, it compels you. And in just a few moments, I'm going to do something that might look a little bit familiar because after most of our Sunday services, we will have an opportunity for people who have never given their lives to Jesus to respond in prayer and to identify that they're giving their lives to Christ. But I'm going to not just pray this prayer for those who may be hearing this message for the first time. I'm going to be bringing this challenge, this call, this encouragement to those of us who've been following Jesus for years. And I'm going to be asking, are you compelled by his love? And if you're not, this is a day to put it right before him. This is a day to re-consecrate, rededicate your life. Going back to that image of all of those faithful Orthodox Jews praying that their sins would be forgiven and yet the Messiah walked among them and they missed him. I have to let you know that there is a real danger that what God is about to do in the earth, that you could be in the same church as someone else who's experiencing it and you miss it completely and it's nothing to do with the church, it's nothing to do with the people around you, it's to do with the closeness of your heart. What is it that closes our hearts? What is it? It's love of other things. It's that we're compelled by a bigger narrative than Christ. How do we respond to that? We repent. And we have to renounce it and say, God, I'm sorry that I've allowed this to take the affections of my life more than something else and I renounce its hold of my life right now because I'm going to be compelled by the love of Christ in my life. Maybe it's more subtle than another idol. Maybe it's an offense. Maybe it's a speck in your eye or a plank even. And you look around at others and you just think, nah. And Christ and his love, it calls us to bring those things before the cross and to say, I lay them down at your feet. What am I talking about when I say love? Well, you know that there's a scripture that's a famous scripture that we often read at things like weddings that talk about love. Sounds a bit mushy, sounds a bit sentimental, but it's not. It's robust and it's strong and it's powerful. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's look at a few of these verses from verse 4 to verse 7. And it says these words. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, and it doesn't keep record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now over the years I've heard people say, replace the word love and put your own name there. Mark is patient, Mark is kind, oh God, please help me. And it's a, it's a good challenge. But the real purpose of this scripture is to tell us what love is. It's not to remind us how short we fall, but it's to tell us how amazing his love is. This describes what compels us. 
This describes what demands our life to be chained to the realities of being compelled by Christ. This is not some sentimental Hollywood engineered love that compels our hearts. This is robust and strong. This defeats everything else in this world. It challenges every other idol in this world. Every disappointment, every pain, every barrier, this breaks the back of it. There's nothing stronger than the love of God. It's the love of God that took our Saviour to the cross to give His life, to shed His blood. It's the love of God that took Him to break the power of sin in the world, to break the power of death. It's His love that causes Him to be able to have the power that overcomes all sickness. It's His love. And this is what it looks like. It's patient. Who's glad of that? Who in this room has not needed God's love to be patient? Come on, show yourself. Because we need you to lay hands on the rest of us. I'm so glad his love is patient. It's kind. He's not just reaching for the loose change in his pocket to give to us. He's oozing with kindness. That's your saviour. How can you be anything other than compelled by him? And of course, the theme of this is compelled and compelling. Not because we look at this and we think, Mark is patient. Okay, I'm going to try and be a bit more patient. Mark is kind. I'm going to try and be a bit more kind. That's not this. It's when we are compelled because we know the love of God, then the aroma of Christ fills our lives and the scent of our lives that walks through this earth carries something of the aroma of Jesus. What's the smell of your life like? What are you smelling of today? Are you smelling of impatience? Are you smelling of meanness of spirit? Are you smelling of offense? If you are, then get the love of God in your life. Discover God's love, which is overpoweringly compelling. This is not a time for 90% of, of our lives given to God. This is, as the old hymn says, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's the love of God that compels me. Doesn't envy. It's not jealous. Do you know, I've seen churches ripped apart by jealousy. Why do they get to do that and I don't? How come they get to go on that and I don't? How come they're given that opportunity and I'm not? God have mercy upon us. What is it? The politics of church that compel us? The denomination that compels us? Finding the significance in our life compels us? Or is it the love of Christ that compels us? Love does not envy. And it's not boastful. This is not look at us. This is look at him. Look at him. Look at our Savior. Look at our Savior.
Would you just close your eyes a moment? And this is not an appeal for those who have never given their lives to Christ. This is an appeal for all of us that have fudged it, that have compromised, that have taken on the standards of this world, not the compulsion of the love of Christ. This is a word for those who have adopted the cultures of this world to be your benchmark. This is a word for those that have driven your understanding of love from Hollywood more than Christ. This is a word for those that desire to say today, this day, now, I'm choosing to re-surrender my life to the Lord, to, if you like, be born again, again. To give your life afresh to Christ. To lay your life at the altar before him. And deal with all that immature offense that you're carrying. Deal with all of that rubbish and garbage that you've adopted from the world. Deal with all that stuff that is just ugly. And allow the love of Christ to be your everything. Love is kind. Love is patient. And I'm going to ask two things. The first one is your internal prayers to God. Prayers of realignment, prayers of repentance. And I promise you right now that there are battles taking place in this room. Your pride is trying to kill you. And everything that's going on in your thinking right now will be a battle with your pride. And yet surrender is the most liberating thing when it's Christ you surrender to. And I want to encourage you, Holy Spirit, would you come and bring strength to our weakness to help us to make brave, godly decisions right now. I pray against all all the strategies of the enemy of rebellion. Rebellion in your heart. Rebellion against the kingdom of God. Rebellion that manifests itself in a refusal to accept any power around you, you have become your God. Because you will take no one else's leadership. And I'm not talking about political or even church. I'm talking about how that pervasive spirit of our day of rebellion has nurtured your soul to refuse to bow the knee to Christ in every area. Holy Spirit, we need your help now because there's all sorts of battles taking place here. We are wrestling. There is a wrestle taking place in our hearts and our minds and we need your help because we can't do this without you. And we know that the hordes of the enemy 
will come against the people of God. And particularly if we've given a foothold to the enemy, there will be a battle of the enemy trying to keep us away from freedom right now. And in Jesus' name, I just rebuke every strategy of the enemy that seeks to keep you compelled to the things of this world, to keep you attached to the things of this world, to keep you enslaved to the things of darkness. In the name of Jesus, I speak the freedom of God over your life. I speak the freedom of God over your mind. Be set free now Hallelujah. from every device and strategy of the enemy. Amen. And having asked for God's help and having rebuked the enemy, the choice is mine and the choice is yours. Will we bow the knee? So first thing, would you win that battle internally? And say, God, I choose to place your love at the epicenter of my life. And I ask this day, as I dedicate my life to you afresh, for you to have your way entirely in me.